Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I am a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. I decided that I was done being physically tied to my business and that I was going to spend the second half of my life living a bigger life and maximizing all the areas of my life, like family, friends, spiritual, travel, my health. And I also knew I was going to need some help with this. So I reached out to the best minds on the planet who are experts in their field to help me to not only create true time and money freedom, but to also help me to lead a truly fulfilled life. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. Just a few of your habits, if changed on a daily basis, could have a profound effect on what your life looks like and feels like. Actions speak louder than words, so no matter what you tell me, I'm watching you to see what you're doing. And the people who are doers get my time, and the people who are talkers don't. We also have way more answers inside of us than we think. When we're not getting quiet, when we're not listening, we're not providing the space for those answers to come up. Well, what's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today's guest is Chris Harder. Who is Chris? Chris is an entrepreneur that owns multiple million dollar businesses that range from masterminds to one of the most successful podcasts in his genre, the name of his podcast is called For the Love of Money, to network marketing, which we do together. He doesn't just dabble in these businesses, he dominates them and turns them into seven figure businesses. I've personally watched him do it over the years, but here's the thing, what blows me away about him is his level of big thinking. He intends something to happen and it just does. We dig into a ton of subjects like his early days in mindset training at Landmark Forum to how a trip to a yoga retreat with a weird Italian who hugged him, pissed him off, but actually wound up changing his life, great story, to where he's currently struggling uh, in the balance between working hard and playing hard. So you can find him on the socials at Chris W. Harder. And without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with my good buddy, Chris Harder. Chris. Robert. Welcome to the show. Thank you, my friend. How are you? Good, man. You know, I've been looking forward to this for a while. You have had um, a giant impact on my life in so many ways. And honestly, I just want to share some of what I learned uh, from you with our listeners. So uh, officially, welcome to the show. <laughs> man, it feels good to be on. I'm actually so freaking excited that you've got your show up and running as well, because I've told you in private and, and I'm going to tell you in public now, I honestly believe that you are going to be the best podcaster in the business. Mark my words, mark the tape right here. You'll be able to go back when you're number one on iTunes and play this right here. I swear to God. No pressure. Yeah. Now you got to live up to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I thought where we, where we would begin would be with this past weekend. I was part of your high-level mastermind, as was 24 other people. You know, we're in a swanky hotel. We're paying a lot of money for the event. Um, and during the mastermind, one of the celebrity speakers, Drew Canoli, who owns Organifi, uh, who is now one of your dear friends. Organifi, uh, for those of you that don't know, is a $100 million company now. But he puts up a picture of you and your wife, Lori. And if I'm honest, you guys were a little bloated, <laughs> not so... Not so flush with cash and certainly not living the Southern California dream life that you are now. Using that picture as a frame or a lens, can you tell us a story of what your life was like back then 
physically, financially, emotionally, or in, or in any way that hits you? Man, really good question. Um, let me frame it this way. That picture was really just a great personification of a few moments in life where we've been broke or where we've felt significantly out of shape um, or overweight or where we've felt significantly unhealthy. And every time that we've been in those situations, it could be traced back to our habits and our tribe. And, you know, I look back at that picture during that time, we we're hanging out with people that valued Friday night fish fries and drinking, you know, until they closed the bar on Friday night and Saturday night. And then, you know, catching Packer games on, on Sunday, which I still love to do. But the difference is I don't eat 10,000 calories and keep drinking all day Sunday as well now. And so that's just, you know, one example of what my habits and priorities looked like during that picture that you saw as opposed to now. Now, do I still love Friday night fish fries when I go back home to the Midwest? Absolutely. I'm just not having them every Friday. Do I still love going to the bar and getting into great conversations with friends? You know, occasionally, yes, but it's not a regular thing anymore. Um, I, I now actually value how I'm going to feel the next day way more than I value, you know, the, the level of fun I'm having that night or at least different type of fun. And Oh, yeah, for, for yeah, sure. When, you know, when Packer games come around on Sundays now, do I still watch them? Yeah, I won't miss one. But it's not a 10,000 calorie, you know, gluttonous fest anymore. You're, you're certainly miles from where you were back then. Um, and in the intro, I talked a lot about um, uh, some accomplishments that you have and where you are now. But can you describe a particular inflection point that maybe you can point to that was responsible for the hockey stick growth that you've had over the last couple of years that sort of lends itself to the life that you're currently living? Mm, I totally can. I can go way back to my very first self-development event. It was called Landmark Forum. I'm sure a lot of people have been to that before. And I remember sitting there thinking these people are, are wackadoo and, and they're sharing, you know, so deeply and they're crying. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Stop crying. Like, like man up. You know what I mean? And now obviously that I've done, <laughs> I've evolved quite a bit. Even the, the comment man up, um, I have a problem with, but nonetheless, at the time, that's where I was. And I, you know, I need to paint that picture for you. And they taught us something there. And that was that. Nothing has any meaning except for the meaning that you apply to it, right? We build all these stories based on a series of events and evidence that we want to find. We pack it into this nice little story. And, uh, you know, this story, so to speak, when your story just kind of runs on default and you let it happen to you, typically doesn't end up serving you. Now, the crazy part is this. You think it's serving you. You think you have a decent life. You think you have some wins. You think you have some good moments. But it's really not serving you. And you don't know this until somebody really points it out to you. And so that would be one of the first big wake up moments like, whoa, my life is not necessarily what I think it is. And that caused me to start questioning everything. What could be better? What could be different? What could I do differently? You know, what, what has been handed to me that I just assumed was normal that may not be normal? So that was definitely one of the so inflection points. Yeah, it's so interesting. That is the one thing that comes up um, almost in every interview I've done so far um, is Landmark. Yeah, well, it's a, you know what? It's a, I think there's probably some better courses out there now, but Rob, this was, oh, I'm just going to guess 10, yeah, this was eight years ago, right? And so these types of courses have evolved so much over the last eight years so rapidly, but it's still, I'm guessing, a great place to start. And there was another inflection point as well. It was, it was when I read 30 books in 30 days. I can't leave this one out. Um, this was 
you know, fast forward a few years from that point, things were good. We had a seven figure income. Um, I was in now good shape, <laughs> but quite honestly, things were just good. And I knew they could have been really great. And that gap from good to great feels about as crappy when you know it exists as the gap from, you know, bad to good. It's really the same gap. It makes you feel the same way. And and really the worst point was my wife was not just good. She was on a rocket ship to great. She was doing all the right stuff. She was doing the self-development. She was reading. She was going to the events. She was, you know, changing her tribe. And, and because there were no massive obvious pain points for me at the time, there was nothing that was causing me to play all out in those areas. And so I remember I would just kind of go through the motions each day and, you know, be glad that our finances were just good and that my body was just good and that my relationship was just good. But man, there really is so much land to be made up between good and great. And when you feel like that's inside of you and you're not playing up to it, it's one of the crappiest feelings on the planet. So that's what had caused me to read 30 books in 30 days and, and put me on that same rocket ship as Lori. So is there a place now where you feel uh, or find yourself in that world of good and know it could be great? Um, and what do you do to bridge that gap now between good and great that you're aware of it? Yeah, my body and my health. Um, just recently, I've changed trainers to really step it up and do something different once again. You know, I've, I've got a good body right now, but it could be great. Um and my health, same thing. Like I've got good health. Thank God. I'm very grateful to God for it, but it could be great. Like I could be setting myself up for longevity and, you know, youthful aging like never before because I know it's out there. I know the habits are out there. I know the hacks are out there. It's all available to me, especially living right here in LA and, and with the tribe that we run with. It's easy to plug in anybody that I want. And so last year, towards the end of last year and, and this year, that's something I'm really focusing on because Again, I'm just kind of playing in the area of good when I know I could be so much better. You talked a little bit about um, Man Up. Um, our mutual our mutual friend, Lewis, um, just wrote a book on the mask of masculinity. Um, and last time uh, I was over at your place, we talked a little bit about um, you making a decision last year to love more and judge less. Can you sort of unpack that a little bit about why you made that decision and, and how that made a difference for you in your life? Oh, yeah, totally. Because it's such an important thing to talk about. It's another one of these things, kind of like when I talked about Landmark and stories, you don't realize how much is holding you back until somebody points it out to you. So uh, 2015, I went to this yoga retreat in Costa Rica. It was yoga, meditation, and self-development. And at the time, it was way outside my comfort zone, like way out of something I would ever voluntarily go to. So Lori literally tricked me. She told me that we were going on a surf and yoga vacation and that some of our friends were going to be there and it would be very retreat-like. And it was already a little bit out of my comfort zone, but I'm like, okay, no problem. I'll go. And I went there and I got there and I literally, I was so far outside of my comfort zone when I realized what I had stepped into uh, the very first day, the very first night when we got there. And when I saw the accommodations, which are actually just fine, but they weren't what I was used to at the time, um, that I looked at Lori and I said, hey, don't let this be the first big rift in our marriage, but I'm going to book a flight and fly home tomorrow because this is not for me and it's definitely not what you said. And she was fine, you know, not inside, but outside. She was fine. She said, hey, that's great. You know, if that's what you need to do, go for it. And because there were no flights out of Costa Rica till the next day, 
I decided to stay there and, and go to see these giant sea turtles that were hatching. And so we, we take literally this cattle truck through rivers that were flooded because the bridges were flooded out because it was rainy season and we're holding on. And, and I go from like, wow, I'm standing in manure to like, wow, I'm actually having fun bouncing around in the back of this truck. And the people were you know, tons of fun as we're bouncing around in the back of this truck, making our way to the beach. And we get to the beach and I'm in awe of what I see. It's literally, literally like one of nature's miracles. I look to the left as far as my eyesight can see. I look to the right as far as my eyesight can see. And there are hundreds of thousands of these massive sea turtles. They have to be, I don't know, three feet around, four feet around, coming up, hundreds of thousands of them at once out of the ocean to lay their eggs and then waddle back into the ocean. It was like something I've never seen before. It was, it was like nature grabbing you by the shoulders and smacking you in the face and saying, look around at how badass all of this is and you're missing out by not participating in things like this. And so that night I had so much fun and had such a positive experience that uh, when I woke up the next day, Lori said, hey, you going home? And I said, no. I said, not only am I not going home, I will stay and I will play all out. I will play at 110% at this thing because I don't want to ruin anyone's time. It, you know, it's a small retreat and, and one bad seed could really ruin everyone's time. So I know she was relieved and, and I was really curious at that point. And I'll be honest, it was weird. <laughs> um, stuff that's probably not so weird to me now, but it was weird at the time. Weird meditations, weird forms of yoga, weird like sun gazing, weird like moon ceremonies, really messed up shit you know, when, you're, when you're not used to that stuff at first. Now some of the stuff I think is super awesome. And I, I was very judgmental at the time. Look at, I was judging the trip. I was judging the accommodations. I was judging the people there when I first got there. And that was a great representation of how I'd lived my life up to that point, just way too judgmental. And there was one guy in particular that got there. I had actually met him a couple of years prior to that over in Croatia at this thing called Awesomeness Fest. And he's this Italian way over the top, you know, way like extra loving, extra crazy, super artsy individual. And he drove me crazy at A-Fest a few years prior to this because he came up, he gave me a hug and I kind of patted him on the back and he grabbed me and pulled me in and he said, don't ever pat anyone on the back when you hug them. You are taking away from the, you know, the sincerity of the hug by patting them on the back. You hold them like this. And I thought, dude, you better let go of me. Like it's about to get ugly, right? Because that's where I was at the time. And so yeah. I did not like this dude from that moment on. Now, fast forward, here we are a couple of years later in, in Costa Rica, sorry to bounce around. And I see that this guy shows up at the retreat and I'm like, oh, hell no. Like I am not spending the next week here with this dude. And sure enough, about two days in, this guy ended up being one of the most fascinating, most interesting most awesome dudes I had ever spent time with in my life. I freaking love the man now. And it was this giant wake-up call, this once again slap in the face that, dude, you are judging way too many people that you might actually love and find fascinating and learn from. And so that is one of many things that happened at that retreat to make me realize that you know, the level, the level at which I'm judging people and things is out of control, like literally out of control and needed to change. 
And I would call it a miracle the way I left there. Because when I left there, I, I had never been so happy. I had never been so present. I had never been so loving in my entire life. And it actually stuck. You know, most things you go to and you're excited for the first week when you leave and then it go back to default. It absolutely stuck. And to reinforce it at the end of that year, um, New Year's Eve, Lori and I always get together. We talk about our wins and we talk about our goals. We talk about the changes we want to make. And I said, the number one change I want to make this next year was, um, this would be January 1st, 2016, was that um, I wanted to judge people less, be hyper-conscious of it, and love people more. And I did. I stayed hyper-conscious of it. It's not that the judgment wouldn't pop in. It's not that some of the hateful thoughts wouldn't pop in. It's that I would catch them and reframe them immediately. And before you knew it, it became second nature that they would pop in less and that when they would pop in rarely, you'd immediately reframe them. And I ended up having the greatest year of connecting with human beings I've ever had and, and have had a couple of those years ever since. And now I run with a tribe. And this is no coincidence, Rob. Now I run with a tribe that I could never imagine myself running with. You know, all the people you want to meet, all the people you want to call friends, all the people that you say, oh my God, if only I could hang out with that person one time. These are the people that text me every day now. These are the people I hang out with every day now. I'm actually going to meet one later today over at Soho House in Hollywood. It's insane what happens to your tribe when you start to love people more and judge people less. That's so interesting. How did how do you um, how did you hardwire that in your body? You know, like you said, you go to you go to a lot of events and it's like a warm bath. You know, you leave the event and it, it, the motivation is good for a couple of days. But how did you get this one to stick? Do you think because you hit a point in your life where you're like, I know I need this and I'm going to make a decision to do it, or was there a particular practice like meditating, you know, every day and just being, you know, hyper conscious? So there's two components. Number one, the wake up call. Like there has to be this significant dichotomy of this is what it felt like when you got here. And this is what it feels like when it's radically different. And for me, that was Costa Rica and learning to, to love that dude and actually thoroughly enjoy him and all that. So that was one of my big, you know, shake me by the shoulder, slap me by the face, wake up calls. But then for that to last, you have to take that wake up call and put it into practice because it felt so good that you want to maintain it. You want to retain it. And so, like I said, you know, New Year's Eve at the end of that year, because this was November when we were in Costa Rica, right? So New Year's Eve was only like 45 days later. I said, this year, I'm going to love people more and judge people less. I'm literally going to be hyper-conscious of it and make it a practice. And it's a practice that doesn't just like happen right away. All the judgment still rushes into your head. But now instead of being a judgmental asshole, you're actually you're stopping it, you're catching it, you're acknowledging it, and you're reframing it. But it's totally on default mode. Like the minute something creeps into my head, it's immediately reframed and I see the exciting positive side of it. Love it. Okay, so slight left turn here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, belief. You are probably, no bullshit, the most positive guy I know. I mean, just crazy positive. What are some beliefs that you have that most people don't? And how did you train yourself to be this way? Mm. I want to start with how I train myself to be this way. Because it's a story I don't think I've ever told in an interview. And no one's ever asked me about. Um, let me go back. Let's see. This would be 11 years ago. I had a boss. And his name was Mark Spiker. And Mark was this great jovial guy. 
And he was so freaking positive that he annoyed everybody around him. He was so positive that we would say, Mark, just once, can't you be real about the numbers so that we can create a plan around this? Mark, just once, can't you acknowledge like how I'm feeling so that we can sit in this little puddle of shit together and then figure out a plan to move forward? Mark, just once, could you, could you not like just whip out some canned positive side to the situation we're in and, and let us all, you know, sit here, misery loves company kind of a thing. And, you know, it's, it's a very sad statement to say he annoyed the daylights out of me. He annoyed the daylights out of um, the other people he worked with, both his bosses and, and the people that worked for him. And then he died at 40 years old. He died totally unexpectedly of colon cancer. And he, um, I remember I flew home. I was living in California. It was the first year I was living in California. I flew home to Minneapolis. And even though he was so positive, he annoyed me. He was still a friend, right? We all have those friends. Like they have a knowing trait, but um, they, they're still a friend. And obviously, we we're no longer working together at this point. We had all moved on to new careers. And I had lunch with him when I flew home to Minneapolis one month. And the next week, I found out he was sick. And the next month, I was flying home again for his funeral. Like that's how fast it happened. And he had no idea at that lunch, by the way. So in five weeks time, maybe six weeks time, he went from same old, same old positive Mark Spiker to dead. And he, his wife was pregnant at the time with their second baby. And I remember it was the craziest wake up call ever for somebody to die at 40, one child already, another one on the way. And I remember asking myself why and how, and you know, at 40 years old, how does something pop up so fast that nobody knows about, no one sees coming and all of a sudden you're gone. And it was, I remember reflecting on his life thinking, feeling guilty, really guilty about judging him all the time and, and being annoyed by his positivity and his po you know, positive outlook on everything. And then I realized, I was like, wow, this guy only got 40 years here, but there were 40 of probably the most happiest, positive, you know, least negativity years you could ever put together because of his outlook, because of his perspective, because of, you know, who he was and the way he lived his life and the way he saw things. And it was like a light switch changed in me. I decided that I was going to live the rest of my years seeing the positive side of things, that the happy side of things, the, the option that may seem like one in a million, but it's still an option side of things. And that was another one of those moments that had radically shifted my life. And it was almost like at first I started living in a very positive manner in honor of Mark, like I wanted to honor him. And then it just became a part of my DNA and a part of my default. And and you are right. I will actually accept that. When you say in the beginning of this question, I might be one of the happiest people you've ever met in your entire life. I literally feel that way. When I wake up, I wake up to a mantra and Lori's like, why are you so happy all the time? And I'm downstairs. I'm happy in the morning. <laughs> and I'm not a morning person by any, by any means, but I'm just happy in the morning. I'm happy to be awake. And I'm happy to be alive. And when you know something happens that's a, a big challenge, uh, you know, I'll reframe it to the positive side. Hell, it happened right before um, I got on this podcast. You know, Lori's got a really stressful day, and I could tell her energy was just a little bit off. And and I said some little positive thing to her to reframe it, and I couldn't tell if it annoyed her or helped her. Probably fifty fifty. 
But nonetheless, it is absolutely my default now is to legit. And here's the key, you guys, to legitimately be happy as can be all the time. Because we have a choice of what to focus on, don't we? We really do. We have a choice of what to focus on and we have a choice of what habits we're going to have in our life on a regular basis that reinforce us to make those choices. For example, you can't just say, all right, great podcast. Thanks for the idea, Chris. I'm going to be happy going forward. No, you have to first claim that and then put in the habits to stay happy. Like I wake up to a mantra every single morning. It's the first damn thing out of my mouth. I'm happier, healthier, wealthier, more fit than I was yesterday. And then I roll over and I wake up my wife to it and I make her say it back. And then I roll right over and I close my eyes and I do 60 to 90 seconds of a gratitude prayer, just saying, you know, thank you, God, for this, 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 this. And it's really juvenile, by the way. If you could be in my head, it's like, thank you for my dog waffles laying across my legs. Thank you for this warm bed. Thank you for the sunshine coming in. Thank you for letting me wake up in California. Thank you for my wife next to me. Thank you for, and then it gets into some little bit better things like my health and stuff towards the end of the 90 seconds. But nonetheless, it's a, a really random inventory of what I'm grateful for. And so look how I start my day. The first two minutes of my day, I'm not rolling out of bed on the wrong side. I am choosing what my very first thoughts are for the first two minutes. And when you do that, the rest of your day can't help but unfold in a positive way. Now, listen, you're still going to have some crap sandwiches handed to you as the day unfolds. You can't control that. But when you started out in such a positive place and when you've worked hard to make this your default outlook, then when the crap sandwiches are handed to you, you don't, you don't spiral, you know, downward spiral into this really tough place that you can't get out of. Instead, you say, okay, that sucks. How could this be better? And you immediately see it as how it could be better and start working on it. You know, um, one of the things that's so interesting is not only are you positive, but you're also incredibly giving. You, um, you have a podcast now, um, called For the Love of Money, which uh, largely centers around money mindset and giving. Um, where are you weak with your own money mindset? Mm, good question. Um, I still, you teach what you need the most, right? So I still can slip out of a feeling of abundance. I can still, it's so funny, no matter how much money you have, you can still feel like it's not enough. And that's why I have to practice those mantras. That's why I have to practice um, meditating and concentrating on abundance. That's why I have to take inventory of what I have and not what I want is because that is for some reason, I don't know why, a default that is kind of set inside of me. Maybe it's because there was a point in my life where Lori and I actually did lose everything several years ago. So maybe that is what affects it. Maybe it's because when I grew up, my dad kept losing a lot of jobs and they were very high-end professional jobs. And I remember, so you know, it's not like you can just go out and find another senior vice president of something engineering, right? And so I remember being a kid and the energy in the house when he would come home and he would have lost a job and seeing the disappointment in my mom's face and the worry that they had over finances. And... um you know, knowing as a kid, like something's wrong, but I don't, I don't quite know how wrong it is because they wouldn't share and they wouldn't talk about finances. And it was one of those taboo things to, to kind of talk about how much money mom and dad have or don't have in the house. Um, so maybe it was some of those things that have all crept into my DNA to, 
bring me to a point where a total feeling of abundance is not my default setting. And so if, if I had any major weakness to work on, it's probably trying to change that part of my DNA, that part of my default settings to one where I do feel abundant, you know, 99 out of 100 times. So what advice then would you give people who are sort of stuck in the quote middle class mindset to break out of it? Um, the first piece of advice is this. Taking advice from your other middle class friends and family is just going to keep you in the middle class. And that's like one of those duh statements, right? And it's also one of those statements that might rub you wrong because I'm just going to use numbers. I hope I don't offend anybody here. But let's say your household income, you live in the Midwest, is $80,000. You can have a nice life. And let's say you're taking advice from the guy down the street with the bigger house and the newer cars, and he's got a household income of $140,000. And you're like, whoa, that is almost twice what I make. I'm going to listen to that dude. Like His advice is spot on. The problem is his advice probably still sucks because he's still in the middle class, right? Maybe a slightly different version of middle class than you're in, but he's still in the middle class. And so you have to break the mold and get way the hell outside of your class and start seeking advice from those people and following the footsteps of those people and not just the people that surround you because you're just going to be the average of all of those people that surround you if you keep doing what you're doing today. Is there anything that people should stop doing when it comes to changing their relationship with money? In other words, you know, you're sort of like deep in this world of money mindset right now. Is, are, are there things that people are doing that you know, your brain is just screaming, stop doing that? That's a really good question. Um, people need to stop taking advice from broken, unhappy people. People need to stop worrying about what other people think of them. Matter of fact, yeah, there we go. If there's anything people need to stop doing, it's giving two Fs about what other people think of you because I've got this saying, it's ego is your greatest overhead, right? Ego is your greatest overhead. And if you think about it is, ego will stop you from speaking up when there's a business opportunity. Ego will stop you from trying to go for that sale when you have a product to sell. Ego will stop you from maybe asking somebody out on a coffee date in order to learn from them or asking someone to be a mentor because you're afraid they're going to say no or they're going to laugh at you. Ego will stop you from turning your friends down for happy hour because you've always gone, yet you'd really rather be working on your business, but you're afraid they're going to think you're a bad friend now. Ego will stop you from so many things. And every time it stops you from these things, it costs you a ton of money. And we can take it a step further and say, ego will cause you to buy the car that you should not be buying yet. I, I, I've been there, done that a lot of times in my life. Ego will cause you to um, you know, buy that stupid handbag uh, whether for yourself or for a significant other that you just can't afford yet, but you want to see, you want people to see you walking around with it. And so you really just need to get your ego in check and stop letting your ego control your financial outcome. You're now living in a house that is worth multiple millions of dollars that you can well afford. Uh, you're driving a new Ferrari, a G Wagon, but you spend a large part of your finances giving. When was the first time you gave and were you always a giver? Oh man, I've always been a giver and, and I've been trying to figure out where this came from. I think it just came from good parents. I remember my parents always giving a little more in the offering dish than everybody else at church. 
Um, I remember growing up, we would adopt families for Christmas and it was so much fun to go out shopping with my mom and with the shopping list for what this family in need needed and to get the gifts and to wrap them and to secretly deliver. I have always had super giving parents. And so I think that's all I knew growing up. The first time that I ever gave, man, I mean, this goes back to middle school and high school. I was always the one that would pick up the tab for my friends. I was always the one that if we were out you know, shopping and, and I had a friend in need that needed something, I'd pick it up for, for them with my spare money. I was always the one that would just, I didn't mind using my money for somebody else's gain. And that just, you know, compounded and compounded and compounded uh, into me as, a, as, as an adult in order to be able to give bigger. So it's always been a huge driver of me. I tell you, what's amazing about that is you're making me realize as, uh, as a parent that these things that you don't think your children are watching, they are watching and they create a ripple effect out there in the world. Um, and certainly your parents have a lot to be proud of in so many ways, but certainly in this area. Um, I want to talk a little bit about coaching. Uh, you are the best coach that I've personally ever worked with. What is your coaching secret weapon? Listen. Mm, I knew you were going to say that. You are, uh, the, you are the best listener ever. I, I'm not kidding. It's, it's something we can all do, and it's something we can all do better, is just listen. Like when somebody is telling you their problems, when someone is telling you what's not working for them at the moment, what's not serving them for the moment, are you listening or are you attached to providing some kind of great advice? Are you attached to, you know, you're halfway through your sentence, Rob, and I already think I know what my answer is going to be because it was a great answer for the last guy. Like just listen and be open to receiving, I believe, from a higher power any kind of guidance that you are supposed to pass on to that person. And when you take your ego out of it of, I have to have an answer or this answer has to sound great. And you just kind of let yourself be the vehicle to pass the message on. Then it all just falls into place. Dude, answers come out of my mouth that I have no idea where they come from. It's just, it never ceases to surprise me. And all I can think is that, you know, outside of obviously a higher power speaking through us, we also have way more answers inside of us than we think. And when we're not getting quiet, when we're not listening, we're not providing the space for those answers to come up. When people come to you for coaching, uh, is there a consistent, pat consistent pattern that you find that most people are falling into, for example, you know, people just don't have belief or people don't see a path or is everybody different? Everyone's radically different, but there, there really are three common trends I think that I see out there. Um, number one, people are not thinking big enough. They really have a cap on what they think they are capable of doing. Um, number two, the tribe that people are running around with is what holds them back the most. And, and I know this sounds like such old news by now, but I want to take it a step further and say the number one thing that holds people back from their dreams and their dream life is that they cannot transcend the current people in their life who are not serving their goals. Because unfortunately, a lot of times that's family. A lot of times that's friends. 
A lot of times that's neighbors. A lot of times that's coworkers. And it takes radical, radical, scary conversations in order to transcend the current people that are not serving your goals. And so it's just easier to be as good as you can be without having to have those conversations or make those moves. And that's where everyone kind of stays is in, well, you know, I'd love to be an A plus, but being a C plus today is not the worst thing in the world. I could always be a D and I don't want to have those uncomfortable conversations or make those bold moves. And so that's one of the the big, big ones. Um, and I'd say the third trend that I see so much is people's habits are holding them back. Um, we, I don't know how, but we've gotten so far down the rabbit hole of people not reading enough, people not listening to enough podcasts, people not exercising enough, people not um, having mantras or meditations, you know, people choosing the the wrong habits over the right ones, things that'll bring short-term pleasure instead of long-term happiness. Your habits, just a few of your habits, if changed on a daily basis, could have a profound effect on what your life looks like and feels like. You'll never know what you don't know. And so how do you find out what you might be missing? You radically change the people or the sources that you are getting ideas from. And listen, you can always try them on for size. If you, you know, bounce out of your tribe and you go meet someone who you think might have great ideas and you're like, whoa, that doesn't feel right. Take it off. You're just trying it on for size, but you're never going to change the average of your thoughts and the information you're getting if you're not changing the sources that you're getting it from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about marriage. You are married to um, the lovely and talented Lori Harder. What is the approach that you take now to working together that has worked the best for you? And can you give us an example of how you use it? And if that's a bad question, feel free to rephrase it. That's a great question. Um, love is a verb. And it's funny, we, we talk about this, we we're joking about it last night. We're joking about it the day before, but when I say we're joking about it, we might be talking about it in light and making little jokes, but we mean it. Like love is a straight up freaking verb. There are way too many people. I don't care working together or not, because I know your question was couples working together, but working together or not, there's too many people that fall in love and say, oh, good, made it happen. Now I can move on to the next project. And then they move on to the next project and they forget that love is an ongoing practice not something that you attain and then you own. And this whole concept, I mean, I can take you down a rabbit hole. Lori and I were talking about this on our six-mile walk uh, yesterday, or I'm sorry, two days ago. The whole concept of possession, meaning you think you own something, when that creeps into your marriage or your relationship, it's a killer. It'll ruin you because you don't, to possess something means you own it, right? It can't go away. And a relationship couldn't be further from the truth. It couldn't be more opposite than that. You don't possess your partner. Your partner is on on loan. Your partner is voluntarily there and they can leave at any time. And listen, if I rub someone wrong that says, no, the Bible says, you know, once you commit under this covenant of God, then you work it out and you make it work. Well, listen to the second part of that. You make it work. Like it is an effort. It's an ongoing thing. And if you're not making it work, if it's not an ongoing effort, then not only should that person leave, they should pack up their shit and run like hell. 
Because why should they ruin this one go around in life in this body? Because you are not playing full out in that relationship. And so it's, listen, we are not perfect. We have all sorts of dips in our relationship, but we acknowledge them, put something new into place to fix them, and then make it a habit going forward. You know, speaking of not being perfect, not everything is rosy all the time. And uh, I think it's very easy for people to assume that you've got everything all figured out. Um, I'd like to dig a little bit into some of the darker periods and how you overcame them. So uh, you went from making multiple six figures to the economy crashing and basically going to zero. Can you describe sort of what that felt like and how you dealt with your ego around it? Um, you know, you mentioned earlier, you alluded to um, ego is your greatest overhead. Um, can you sort of describe what that was like and how you overcame that? Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I can actually tell you a story that'll sum up what it was like. So we were living way beyond our means. You know, I'd get a massive raise every single year, like literally 50 or 100 grand, right? So I thought it would last forever. We're in our 20s. And then the recession hit. And it shut off like a faucet. And after a year of flying around, telling everybody that, hey, we're letting you go. Here's your severance package. What questions do you have? It became my turn. And they said, you don't want a severance package or a demotion of a demotion of a demotion of a demotion to ride this thing out. And I said, give me the severance package. I'm out of here. Well, it was a really nice multi-six-figure executive severance package. But the problem is we were living so far beyond our means that I had to use the entire severance package on debt and borrow $120,000 from my parents in order to just get back up to zero. So when you said it went down to zero, no, it was way below zero at this moment in time. And so I remember we short sold our house before this big, gorgeous house that we had just finished building. We had to short sell our house because the economy crashed and it was worth way less than we built it for. And we had no other way of getting out of it. And so we kind of secretly put it on the market and um, our neighbors didn't really know it was for sale. And a couple came along and, and they bought it for an absolute bargain, obviously. And I remember sitting at the closing table thinking, I can't believe I'm in this position where this couple obviously took good care of their money and they're able to take advantage of this bargain. And I'm on the other end of the table where I'm the one who you know, put himself in a bad position and made this bargain available for them. And it was just this really weird feeling. And then to compound that, you know, here comes moving day of a couple of weeks later, and there's moving trucks in the, the front yard. Yes, I know even when we were broke, we had movers because I refused to move. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I hired these movers and there's moving trucks in the front yard. And my neighbor, his name was Greg, living across the street. And Greg was one of the most judgmental, nosy dudes on the planet. Couldn't stand Greg. And he comes over and he says, hey, what's going on? What, what's up with the moving trucks? Like, where are you going? And I said, well, I lost my job and we can't afford to keep the house. And so we sold it and, and we're moving to a little apartment. And the look on Greg's face was this like surprised, appalled, like, like, wow, you suck look. And then he asked me, he goes, you sold the house. He goes, well, well, what'd you sell it for? And I told him and he looks at me and he says, you sold it for what? 
he, that, that's going to hurt all the values on the street here. Oh, my God. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and I looked at him. I don't, I don't remember anything what I said back, but I remember looking at him in that moment thinking, oh, I'm so glad I'm not going to be your neighbor anymore. And it was like this overwhelming moment of, wow, here we worked so hard to be in this neighborhood and have this house. And really, I just didn't enjoy these neighbors. And actually, I did not enjoy these neighbors. I hope that they hear this at some point because they were so worried about stuff and they were so worried about, you know, hey, we're having kids. Why aren't you having kids yet? And they didn't understand that we had dreams that we wanted to pursue. And like everything about that street was, um, God, I forget the name of that show where all the families seemed so perfect for so long. It was like a show that was on every Sunday. Anyhow, it was like this fake street of fake people. And I couldn't freaking stand the idea of not feeling comfortable and not feeling like we fit in there. And Lori felt the same way. It was like a, de- and it so like it was a desperate that. housewives vibe. That was the show. That was the show. Yep. Yep. Desperate housewives. And so I remember that moment feeling so good and so freed, like, whoa, I tore the bandaid off. I told Greg what happened, you know, cause I knew he'd be the most judgmental guy in the street. And his response was nothing more than reassurance of, oh, this happened for us, not to us. And we get to get the hell out of here. Wow. What a gift and what a reframe, really. So that was back then. Let's, uh, let's fast forward a little bit to now. Are there any particular struggles that you're currently facing or behaviors that you're trying to change that you're willing to share with people? On trying to find balance. I'm working. Hey, there we go. It's the whole point of this damn show. I'm working <laughs> on what your show is about. I'm so tired and I'm so burnt out from all of my wishes coming true. What a weird statement, right? Mm -hmm. I'm so tired and I'm so burnt out from all my wishes coming true that I've got to change something, Rob, in order to find more free time and more me time and more happiness, for lack of a better term, in all of the hustle, in all of the grind. Yeah. I mean, be careful what you wish for, right? So, I mean, that's, that's what we're directing, you know, uh, in this show. So many entrepreneurs, they hit a point where things just keep getting better and better and better and better and better. And then they get more and more and more and more and more. And before they know it, they're, they're not in the shape that they want to be and the relationships are in the shape. And I, I think the answer to the question, at least from, you know, from my perspective is to make as much time for those other areas to maximize those other areas as you do entrepreneurship. So, you know, it's a matter of how much effort you want to put into those other areas of your life because, you know, you've, you're always busy, right? We, we all get the same 24 hours. We just have to decide how we want to carve it out. You know, you're always going to be busy being broke or you're always going to be busy being successful. So I'd rather err on the side of being busy being successful. But having been on both sides, you do have to have a hyper awareness of what are you giving up in order to have this? And that's the conversations that Lori and I have been having a lot lately is what are we giving up in order to have this? And do we want to give those things up? And how do we want this to look? And Lori said it last night, we're on a walk. You know, We've got this mandatory dog walk at the end of every single workday. And it's one of the most valuable habits that we have. And she said last night, she said, Chris, I want to challenge everything this year. There's no rules. There's no must do's. There's no, it must look like this. I want to challenge everything. Everything. And she was referring to, you know, her book is bought and completed and we're about to go into the big book launch and they want her to write another one. And she's like, there's no way my next book is going to feel the way this one felt because that was hell. 
we're really working in the flow right now, Rob, to try and find that sweet spot of fulfillment and success and abundance and happiness, all of it living together in a very easy way. You taught us the three questions that you heard, I think it was from Tim Ferriss. What would this look like if it were easy? What would this look like if it were fun? And what would this look like if it were elegant? They have been the best questions that have ever been introduced to us because it immediately helps us to challenge what this looks like and what it could look like. Yeah. And sometimes a uh, little power tip on the fun one. Sometimes you'll be looking at something and you'll be like, there's no way I can make this thing fun. And I ask, what would this look like if I had to make it fun? Rob, it happened to me yesterday. Like, let me give you an example of how I'm using this question. So I was late for my haircut because our meeting was running over and I was crabby that I was rushing with a haircut in my car. Um, and then I hit this little traffic jam because it's LA. Why wouldn't you hit a little traffic jam? And I was super pissed off and stressed out. Like I felt the stress on my shoulders. And then I said to myself, I'm like, no, 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 wait, what would this look like if it were fun? What would this look like if it were easy? And what would this look like if it were elegant? And so I texted my haircut woman, whatever you call her, hairstylist. I don't know what you call them. And um, said, hey, I'm running late. Little traffic jam, nothing I can do about it. And immediately that released the stress. And then I realized uh, I am in a Ferrari convertible (laughs) on a 78 degree sunny day in Brentwood. And so I put the top down and I turned up the music and I actually enjoyed the fact that I'm sitting in my dream car instead of not even acknowledging it because I hadn't even acknowledged it. To me, it was might as well have been a Chevy Nova at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and those questions allowed me to thoroughly enjoy the rest of my ride to the haircut that I was late for and had no qualms about being late for it. And then on my way back, I asked, I had a, a coaching call, a Zoom coaching call scheduled. And so instead of stressing about that call, I said, nope, what would this look like if it were fun, elegant, and easy? And I stopped and I got my favorite coffee with my favorite oat milk and put on some great music for the ride home. Now, we're only talking like a three-mile ride, but nonetheless, I'm now finding ways to make the little things way more present and way more enjoyable instead of rushing through them and not even acknowledging all these blessings. That's so awesome. It's, they, they, they really, really are powerful uh, pattern interrupts um, that really in, it's the fastest thing I know of to go from stress to peace, um, fun, excitement, elegance in literally seconds. So very, very cool. Let's talk a little bit about um, playing hard. What are some of your new non-negotiable rituals like meditation, um, I know you guys used to, I don't know if you still do this, uh, fry dates, things like that. What are some of your non-work, non-negotiable rituals that sort of fall into the play hard uh, part of your life? You know, it's not really playing hard, but we have a non-negotiable three-mile dog walk every single night at the end of our workday. And I mean non-negotiable. I don't care if it's raining out. Um, luckily, we live in a straight state where it never rains, but um, that's one of them. And that is such an important thing to have in place as a working couple together because it allows you to have have that change of pace, that change of space, that change of energy, and that huge thing built in where we may leave the walk super pissed off or just feeling like business partners. And we never end the walk 
without feeling in love and happy and reflecting on the blessings that we have. And sometimes it takes us the first 45 out of 60 minutes to even talk. But nonetheless, it never, ever fails to bring us back to a romantic couple instead of just business partners. That's one thing. Another thing is uh, traveling more, but travel that does not stress us out. So Greece that you introduced us to last year um, is now a non-negotiable for us. We're coming every year. Sorry, bud, like it or not. (laughs) Um, Another thing that's really important, here's one thing we have not wavered from, and this is crucial. Um, Nobody can get a hold of us for any business purposes before 11 o'clock a.m. Now, some people might say, what? That's unrealistic. I can't do that. Well, fine. Find your protected time because that's what we call it. Protected time. That is our time to make sure that we get our meditation, our workouts in, um, a dog walk in the morning or hanging out together, reading, having our coffee, putting ourselves first so that we can at least be the best version of ourselves for everybody else from 11 o'clock a.m. on. And so that's another thing that um, is just been such a game changer or lifesaver that we put into place on the on the play hard side. All right. So um, two quick sections that I want to go through with you. One is we put the bat call out uh, to ask people, are there specific questions that they want to ask, uh, ask you? So uh, I want to talk a little bit about some questions from social media and then we'll wrap with uh, some rapid fire questions. Cool. I love it. Totally. Okay. So from social media, Tom asks, um, I would ask him the number one thing that keeps him going when he feels like giving up and how he makes the mental shift to keep going. couple things. Um, we have a lot of family that depends on us. And then giving. I know this sounds like such a canned answer, but I'll, I'll give you some backup as to, to prove it. I want to be able to give way, 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 way more. Like we are going, we're leaving tomorrow night for Guatemala to go see some schools that we built with some other really kick-ass giving individuals with Pencils of Promise. And although I'm proud of what we've been able to do up to this point, I want to do way more because this world is starving for more. And I want to be known, like, what's your legacy? I want to be known for having made a significant difference, not just a little bit of a difference. I think that if you've been given the talents and the abilities to do that, then you literally bear that responsibility. That, that's my opinion. So awesome. <clears throat> you know, jo- uh, Josh asks, uh, is, there a, is there one book or influence that has shaped your abundance mindset that you would recommend? Yeah, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. And it's no longer the best book I recommend, but it was the game changer specific to his question. Um, that changed everything for Lori and I. When we were at our lowest financial point, we laid in bed reading that book out loud to each other all night, uh, you know, night after night after night. And when I was tired, she would read. When she was tired, I would read. And we would do the little actions that they ask you to do in that book out loud. And we'd laugh about it because it was so dorky. But that is what taught us that we have a financial thermostat and we had it set at the wrong place the entire time. That is what changed you know, so many thoughts that we had around abundance and possibilities and what's in our control. And we were able to go from, we went from like, uh, let's see, what was it? We went from just over 300,000 one year down to 125 the next year, down to zero, up to 
900 and I'd have to go look like 972 or 980,000 or something like that. Then, so basically a million bucks the next year when we read that book. What's the current book that you'd recommend if you, did, if you didn't recommend that one now? Um, it's You Are a Badass at Making Money by Jen Sincero. Okay. I got that as in my swag bag. So I'm going to read yeah, it. It's, it's so good. Kayla asks, if you had to start all over from scratch today, what would he do and how would he do it? I'd get a sales job where the sky is the limit on your commissions. And I would work the freaking daylights out of that job, knowing that I could you know, really work that pay plan to start bringing in as much revenue as possible to then start investing that revenue into what my real dream was or my real plan was or my real goal was. And a lot of people do this with, with network marketing. It's the sky's the limit. And if you work your tail off in it, you can make enough revenue to then reinvest in what your dream or your purpose really was meant to be. And so that's exactly what I would wake up and do. Yeah. I mean, you guys have, uh, you guys have used it as a platform, uh, to certainly make a, uh, a multi-million dollar business out of it. Um, I am, uh, Kim and I are late to the game, uh, but we jumped in and are drinking the Kool-Aid now ourselves and doing very, very well with it. So that I would, I would second that. Um, and then the last question from, uh, from social is from Tracy. She says, I'd love to know the best way that he vets people that want his time. I know his time is in high demand and is so valuable. How does he do it so that his energy is conserved and not pulled in ineffective directions? Um, two things. One, actions speak louder than words. So no matter what you tell me, I'm watching you to see what you're doing. And the people who are doers get my time and the people who are talkers don't, no matter how good your talk is, how big your dream is, even if you're a great person. And number two, it's an energy. I can read the energy of your intentions. Um, are you ready to follow through? Are you not? Are you doing it for the right reasons? And when, when our chemistry matches, when our energy matches, I'll go two feet in for you. You certainly will. All right. We're going to wrap up with uh, some rapid fire questions. Um, feel free to answer as uh, briefly or as uh, lengthy as you would like. Are there any particular books that you've reread um, and, um, if so, is there a particular one that you recommend that people start with? In other words, if it's an author that's written multiple books. Yeah. Um, I mentioned one before secrets of millionaire mind. I think Lori and I have now read that together three times. Um, also Tuesdays with Maury. I read it every single March. It brings me back to what's really important in life. And, um, because that was when I first read it. I first, when I did 30 books in 30 days, a few years ago, that was book one on March 1st. Crazy, right? And so March 1st, I started every year now and I fly through the book and it's just such a great reminder of what really matters in life. And then Conversations with God, book one, two, and three, um, those are so freaking good. It's not a religious book. It's a book that really takes any questions you've ever had and makes absolute sense out of them. What's the one app on your phone that you cannot live without? Oh God, this is a horrible answer, but probably Instagram. Best advice for your 30-year-old self? Are you saying I'm over 30 now, Rob? Yeah, <laughs> I was just at you 40. Um, best advice for my 30-year-old self is that your 30s are, are probably going to be the 
best part of your life until you're in your 40s and you realize that those are going to be the best part of your life. And so really what that means is any present moment in your life is the best part of your life. And as soon as that sinks in and as soon as you are hyper aware of that, your your happiness, God, we went back to happiness before, is exponentially more in the moments that you are totally present. Mm. So true. If I were to talk to your friends other than me and ask them what your superpowers are, what would they answer? Um, my positivity, my ability to monetize people's talents and my habits and my ability to recognize talent. This is so bad. I don't want to get a million messages, but um, I can tell you who's going to be successful and who's not probably within a 99% degree of accuracy. I believe it. And the last question, if you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything that you like to do or have a passion for, what would it be on? You know, I don't believe that I'm known for being non-judgmental. And so I would do a TED talk on judgment and releasing judgment. Freaking love it, dude. I, uh, so look, personally, I just want to say thank you, um, for everything that you've done for me. Thank you for being in my life. Thank you for allowing me to be, to be a part of yours. Uh, and I speak for Kim as well. And, and many of the other people that are in my life that you've affected, um, so thank you. And I also know that getting an hour from you at this place in your life is um, unthinkable. So I'm grateful for that time. And I just want to, I just want to say thanks. You can have all the hours you ever want. And that's the mark of a true friendship is as you sit here and thank me, I think that's so funny because you have done equally as much for Lori and I, you know, from the mandatory trips to Greece to the three questions that we're using this year to books that you recommend, to podcasts that you recommend, you constantly give. And, and here's the problem. Everyone thinks giving is a monetary thing. You constantly give so much value to us. It's insane. And that's the message I'd wrap this whole damn thing up with is when it's an equal energy exchange, you'll have a relationship forever. Thank you, buddy. I love you. Love you, man. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.